obstetrician Christine Choi guilty on four charges of professional misconduct. She's been suspended for two years. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Enid Cho. Coming up, I'll be asking the wonderful Barry Wood what he makes of recent economic data and HP's new round of layoffs. Joshua Han Miller, CEO of OK.com, will tell us how he's got a new approach to selling and buying properties in Hong Kong. And then a detour into the world of wine as Vin Expo opens this week. The wine show's CEO, Guillaume Diglis, will be joining us. This is a soft economy, but obviously this is a fresh breeze in the housing market. I think it's good news. That was Frank Keating, president and CEO of the American Bankers Association, talking about the U.S. housing market. I'll have more on that later. China has ordered state-owned enterprises to cut ties with U.S. consulting companies such as McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group because of fears that they are stealing state secrets on behalf of the U.S. government. That's according to the FT's report. It came days after the U.S. Justice Department charged five people PLA Army officers for hacking and stealing secrets from U.S. companies. Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda told the Wall Street Journal in an interview that Prime Minister Abe had to step up deeper structural changes or real group real growth would be disappointing. He also signaled concern that a sustained rise in the value of the yen would undermine the recovery. And politically, relationship between Russia and the West may have soured, but That hasn't stopped U.S. and European oil majors from signing a bunch of oil and gas deals with the Russians at an industry forum in St. Petersburg. They ignored pleas from the U.S. government to boycott the event. Turning to the Asian markets this morning, the Nikkei is up 0.8% to... 14,576 points. The Australian ASX is up four points to 5,473 points. Seoul is down almost three points to 2,016 points. There will be no US stock trading today because of the Memorial Day holiday. Let's uh, go back to the U.S. housing market. Data on Friday showed that sales of new single-family homes rose more than expected in April, and the number of houses on the market hit a three-and-a-half-year high. Third, further signs that the housing market is recovering, according to the Commerce Department. Well, demand for new homes remained around half the level in a healthy economy. So what does it take for demand to improve? Here's Frank Keating again. It's going to take a much more robust hiring market. People have to know that they have a job that may hopefully last longer than six weeks or two months. Temporary workers generally don't want to go into the housing market and buy because they're not sure if they're going to be anything more than temporary. But there is also this new uh, system of regulation that requires 43% debt to income, the ratio between debt and income. Uh, that. Uh, keeps a lot of senior citizens out of the housing market if they Mm -hmm. want to move to Florida, for example. They have assets, but they don't have much in the way of income. Also, places like Puerto Rico, that's a tough uh, number to reach. So to be more flexible, to be more creative in financing, to go back to, yeah, you got to have a job, assets, and income, but I believe you also, I'm going to give you a shot at a loan. That just doesn't exist anymore, and I Mm -hmm. think that's very regrettable.
That was Frank Keating, president and CEO of the American Bankers Association, speaking on Bloomberg earlier. Let's say hello now to Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. Good morning and happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Hello. Ah, yes, it's evening here, but good morning to you. Of course, you're back in D.C. now after your globe trotting. Um, I hope people are out shopping this long weekend. And um, helping the recovery. Good, because a new survey. I think they are. They're, um, they're enjoying good weather here in the east. So uh, it's, uh, it's a welcome... Welcome change. And, uh, <laughs> and, of course, it's the traditional beginning of summer. So I think uh, signs are pretty good. Yeah, because the cold weather has, um, has, um, has damaged the uh, U.S. retailers' recent earnings, hasn't it? Um, a new survey showed that the earnings are trailing analysts' estimates by the widest margin in 13 years, which um, sounds pretty bad for a recovering economy. Well, that's true. And that's affecting big retailers, particularly like Walmart and some of the dollar stores. And it has been difficult to get out. Consumer confidence hasn't been as strong as it should have been. You mentioned housing a moment ago, but I think uh, housing is probably going to improve somewhat because despite those restraints that Mr. Keating was talking about, we've really got now um, more inventory coming onto the market, and we've got people who are feeling a little more confident that they can actually make a big purchase. So it's not uh, gangbusters, but it is a slow and steady improvement. But as you suggested, it's not at all what it was back in 2007, 2008. So the increase in um, property for sale in the market would suggest that people think that prices had certainly hit bottom and can only go up. Yes, that's true, Enid. Prices uh, certainly have hit bottom, at least in this current cycle. But, you know, we had never had a overall drop in home prices for the entire nation since the 1930s. So you have to go back 60 plus years to see the kind of catastrophe that happened in the U.S. housing market from 2007 until the present. And still, on home construction, on sales, uh, we are still not at all approaching the level of 2007. So it is still a depressed industry. A lot of experts thought that housing would recover much faster than it has. Okay, I mean, over here in Hong Kong, everybody is watching very keenly for signs on when interest rate, borrowing rates will start going up again. And how does that factor um, affect U.S. homebuyer sentiment? It's a huge factor. But I was talking to someone this afternoon who's a real estate agent who was saying that still about 40% of American homeowners are underwater meaning that they owe more on their mortgage than their home is worth. These people feel trapped because they might want to sell and move up, but they can't get enough money for the property to do so. So that is a big constraint. But house prices are rising, and you ask about interest rates. Here, it is absolutely the right time to buy a home if you can get into the market because the expectation is that rates may stay at this low level for another six months. But after that, they're going to begin to rise, even though it might be slowly. So when it does go up, interest rates, people are not expecting home prices to take a short-term dip at least. No, I don't think 
so. You know, in a strange way, and we'll have to see how this plays out, Enid, that it's likely that if interest rates rise, there could be a rush of people into the market because they're fearful that rates will go higher still. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But currently, if you can trade your home, if you can buy a home, if you can sell, this is absolutely the best time in modern history in the United States to do so. Hmm. Well, I mean, Keating also mentioned that he thinks for housing, uh, for housing transactions to go back to normal levels, they, well, basically, there need to be more jobs. And last Friday, I mentioned that HP said it's going to cut another 11,000 to 16,000 jobs on top of the 34,000 already announced. That's 16% of its total workforce. Is that indicative of more job cuts from certain sectors or is it just HP? <laughs> probably somewhat specific just to HP. You know, this was such a leader for decades in the Silicon Valley in terms of having several different interests in the computer market, whether it was manufacturing services, uh, storage, they did it all. But the competition has become intense. And if you're in the Silicon Valley, in the San Francisco area, Most companies are hiring. They can't find Mm. enough people in engineering. But if you're a Hewlett-Packard employee, you're terrified because you know that there are more job cuts ahead. Meg Whitman, the chairman of the company, has said so. And so it's a real disjointed situation. But I don't think it is characteristic of the entire industry. That's that's really good news. Um, well, we may get a, a bit of bad news, though, on Thursday when we're going to get the revised Q1 GDP figure from um, the U.S. And people are saying that it's likely to shrink. Why is that? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because if that GDP figure is a negative, and almost all of the uh, respected forecasters are saying it will be, I think the initial report was, what, one-tenth of was, one percent Yeah, it was up. upward. Mm-hmm. Uh, on an annual basis. But if you get a decline, I'm not sure that that's in the market. I'm not sure that people are expecting that. And that that could derail the really stock market rally that we've seen at low volume, it should be emphasized, over the past week. But, uh, you know, here you've got the indexes at pretty much record levels. And if you get a very weak GDP figure, then people will start looking ahead at this upcoming jobs figure and say, well, hold it, maybe we should wait a little bit because this recovery may not be as real as we think. So were there any specific factors in the first quarter that led to this um, anticipated shrink in GDP growth? Yes, I think it was just the severity of the winter. It was uh, more than anything weather. And I know that that is somewhat of a tiresome argument because it's been made as these winter months went by in the States. But it was a factor. In the Northeast and in the upper Midwest, it was the worst winter on record for 50 years. And that meant that the snowfall, the sort of completely predictable kind of bad weather that just made people depressed. It affected consumer sentiment. It, it, it impacted their buying habits. And that probably was the biggest factor behind the slowdown. There wasn't any you know, boost in gasoline prices. There wasn't any boost in interest rates, certainly. There was no inflation in the system. So I think that uh, you can't really come up with anything that is persuasive except the weather. 
So hopefully it's a one-off that we are getting more extreme weather in um, your part of the world these days, aren't we? We are, Enid, and uh, it's got to mean something, but the experts can't agree. That's for sure. Okay, let's turn to uh, Europe next. Well, the um, Europe is not exactly out of the shadow of the sovereign debt crisis yet, and now we've got all these anti-Europe, anti-cutback parties winning a significant number of seats in the European parliamentary election over the weekend. Do you think this is uh, going to cause, um, well bring back the crisis? I don't think it's going to bring back the crisis, but it's certainly a wake-up call to all the politicians in these uh, 28 um, member countries of the European Union. I mean, this is a shock that the anti-EU parties have done so well. In France, they say it's a political earthquake to have this right-wing uh, Marie Le Pen National Front essentially out-polling the other standard parties. And, you know, the similar result uh, on the left side in Spain, Greece was another factor. This is, look, I think listeners are aware that the European Parliament is very significant, but it doesn't really have a lot of power. 751 talking heads, that's what it is. It is going to mean that the right-wing parties within that parliament will still have a majority, although it's shrunk. The left wing has gone down, but not as much. But what probably will be the first impact, Enid, is that Martin Schulz, the German who's from the socialist bloc, probably will not now be named the European Union next um, director general because his party has not got anything approaching a majority. We're at, what, at 27% for the right, 25% for the center. So that means that uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, the former prime minister of Luxembourg, is likely going to be the top man in Europe. But, of course, the governments of Europe don't really have to follow the parliament anyway. But this was a rising factor. Well, it's surely, yeah, yeah, surely it shows uh, how a significant number of uh, the European population is feeling about you know the austerity drive that governments had to um, introduce in recent years and government will surely react to that and there's call for right. call for fewer cuts and higher taxes and also of course yeah. there's the anti-immigration um, drive that's um, headed by these parties who have won and that's going to have an impact on the movement of people movement of labor it is, and it's going to affect national politics in Italy, Spain, France, Greece, um, probably not in Germany. But, yeah, I think it's a wake-up call, and it certainly was anti-austerity and anti-European Union. So any forward movement in terms of bringing in new members, I think, is pretty much dead for a while. And um, speaking of Europe, there's been um, a, a gas uh, there was a supply of gas from Russia has been a, a big story recently. And now we're seeing these Western energy companies like BP um, signing deals with um, Russia's state-owned company Rosneft. Let's face it, I mean, Russia is not going to suddenly stop being a major supplier to the West because, well, they can't do without it, right? Well, I think that is the case, and uh, you're certainly right to suggest that the Europeans are not unified in how they want to approach sanctions against Russia to penalize them for their actions in Ukraine. The uh, Germans, the Austrians, they've all got the business interests that you mention. Uh, I think the dependence of 
Europe on Russian gas will probably continue at current levels. It's about a third. And, of course, now the Russians being aware that they're an exporting country of resources, now they want to do a much bigger deal with China, and they'll do so. Yes, a $400 billion deal with um, PetroChina that was signed the other day. I mean, do you think this is going to um, strategically change um, geopolitics in certain ways? Yes, I do, Enid. I think that, uh, first of all, you know, China has now become for Russia the number one trading partner. This means there's going to be construction of more pipelines across Central Asia from Russia into China. I think it really gives momentum to the BRICS bank, you know, because when the BRICS summit occurs in Brazil after the World Cup, I think that they're going to announce this new bank. That bank probably will provide some of the financing for these pipelines. And I think strategically it does shift Russia closer into Asia and lessen its relationship with Western Europe and the United States. And that's significant. Great. Thank you, Barry, for this week's wrap-up of Economic Stories. That's Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent who's based in Washington, D.C. Next, let's welcome Joshua Han Miller, CEO of OK.com. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for coming into the uh, studio. So tell us how OK.com works. It's a property website. Um, How does it differ from the other property websites operating in Hong Kong. Sure. Thank you very much for asking. I think um, OK.com, and just to explain for viewers that aren't familiar with us, OKAY.com is analogous to the Chinese for home, Lokke. So that's really why we picked our name. Uh It's a signal that we're very different. And what we're doing is using technology to change the real estate industry and how the the brokerage market works. Um, Effectively, as anybody who has leased or bought a home knows, it's often a very inefficient process. It's very difficult to get information. Agents themselves don't often have that information. And what we're trying to do is uh, really bring transparency to what is an opaque market. Um, so are you going – is this a sort of a one-shop stop for property buyers and sellers? Do you provide all the, um, all the support, like legal support and so on? Not so much the legal support because obviously I think you have to be um, – a convincing lawyer to legally be able to do that. But we do want to provide so much more in terms of information. So, for example, when you're looking in the market right now, generally when you work with an agent, uh, you really never know if they have the full picture of what's happening in the market. And oftentimes it's not necessarily even their fault if they don't because the agents themselves in the market often don't speak with each other. That's one of the interesting facets of the Hong Kong industry uh, architecture that's quite different to some markets like the U.S. that have what's called an MLS or multiple list service where agencies actively share information. They want to get listings out into the market, whereas here every agency has their own proprietary database and they're not speaking with each other. So if one agent agent has sold a property, the other agents may not know, you mean? Well, completed transactions are recorded with the government. So that happens and and it happens a few months after the sale. But for example, if you're selling your home, Enid, and you tell me as an agent, oftentimes I won't even tell my colleagues or certainly not other agencies because I'm trying to collect commissions from both sides of the transaction, from the buyer as well. So I want to first try and market it just to my direct clients. And so that that conflict of interest oftentimes um, means that your listing, your home available for sale, does not get out into the market. And that hurts, of course, landlords trying to get exposure for their properties. And then if you're buying or renting, um, 
you don't see everything that's in the market because there's only a few agents that have um, select listings. It's very much a hit and miss process right now. So the properties listed on your website, are they, are they exclusive to you? No. Um, many of those are listed on um, other companies' websites or at least with other agencies. I think what's unique about us is we use technology to change uh, what it means to run an agency from a cost structure perspective. And then with uh, a large margin differential, we change the incentives of agents. So we give them much higher commissions for sharing information. And um, in doing so, it means that all of our clients and the public have a, a much greater idea of what is available on the market. So do um, your customers have to pay more fees as well to the agents? Absolutely and to not. You? No, we, we charge, uh, I think, similar fees to other agents in the market. We're not trying to differentiate that way. Um, we simply want to provide a better service by providing a lot more information. So tell me, this is a rather challenging time um, for yes. somebody to get into the property game with transaction volume being so low. So what, what, why have you decided to launch this venture now? Actually, that's a great question. It's a perfect time for us, in fact. Um, because of what we do, the agents that work with us have a huge advantage over, uh, I think, agents working at other agencies and we're able to give consumers a much better picture of what's available. So what that means is we can succeed despite a, a difficult market. So last year, for example, uh, you know that the real estate market fell by about 40%. Um, and on our side, we grew by more than 120%. And in fact, the number of agents joining us is, is growing at an even faster rate than that. So we project even more growth in the future. Um, part of it is because we are able to help agents uh, help their clients much more efficiently, and we save people's time. So that means more closed transactions and more happy clients. But um, importantly, you know, we're still a relatively young company, and what uh, drives our growth is more the growth in our um, agent population and client base, not perhaps downturns right. when in you the said, market. When you said 40% decline, that was, that was transaction, right? Correct. Well, not prices. But um, people are still uh, predicting... Um, a fall in prices yes. in the rest of the year. It's interesting to see that you know this new property, Chen Kong's City Point development in Chunwan, attracted very rare queues yes. um, over the last few days, and that's because they found they're selling the flats at fifteen, sixteen percent discount to the area secondary market. Do you that's think? Right. Do you think the the broader market has room to fall by at least that much? Actually, I do, and I think it's a healthy thing. If you look at what's happened in the last couple of years, you've seen prices continue to to rise uh, while demand has diminished, which is why you've seen very low transaction volumes. Supply is likely to increase further with about 17,000 homes um, looking to be placed on the market this year in the first-hand market alone. So that's the most in over 10 years. What that means is that that supply-demand uh, equilibrium where they meet really isn't a true equilibrium because volumes are so low. It's very much like the stock market. Um, and I, used, I came from a financial background and worked in banking. Um, when you have very low volumes, you really have a market that's prepared to change very in a very big direction, um, hmm. either up or down. In this case, it's certainly downwards. So what's changing is, is sellers' expectations, and I think that prices will come down. You see that being led by the large developers, um, and that, of course, is going to lead other homeowners to change their expectations, and that's a healthy thing. Now, the Secretary for Financial Services and Treasuries, Angaka, said in a recent interview that property cooling measures will remain in place until U.S. interest rates start to rise. But they did, of course, relax the double stamp duty, right? And have you seen any immediate impact of that? 
No, the the impact will take a long time. I think that um, you know even the impact of the original SSD took years for it to really be felt. Prices continued to rise despite the cooling measures, and only now are we starting to see a weakening. So real estate takes a long time to move in one direction or another. Um, so it'll be some months, I think, before you really see an impact. Great. Thank you very much for coming onto the show. That's Joshua Han Miller, CEO of OK.com. Fancy a tipple? Try 1,300 alcohol stands from 30 countries. Tomorrow sees the start of the three-day Asia-Pacific Vin Expo, the biggest showcase for wine and spirits in Asia. Let's say hello now to Guillaume Deglise, CEO of Vin Expo. Good morning. Good morning. So very exciting. Well, lots and lots of um, alcohol to try for visitors. And um, what? Um, how many visitors are you expecting to this year's show? Uh, we expect about uh, 17,000 visitors from the, the Asia-Pacific region. So we're very excited about it. So from past experience, how many of the visitors would be coming from abroad, ex- excluding um, the, the, the participants, the people behind the stands? Well, the majority will be coming from... Uh, the Oops, I think there's something wrong with... Um, our phone line. Um, can, can you hear me? Yes. We're still getting um, um, a lot of um, um, interruption on the line. Um, hello? Oop, can you speak again and see if the line's better? Um, no, it's not. Maybe we'll call you back. Um, so let's take a look at how the markets are doing so far. The Nikkei 225 is now up 0.6% to 14,550 points. The Australian ASX is up nearly 8 points to 5,478. And Seoul's Cosby is down, down, well, it has recovered somewhat. It's down one point now to 2,000. And 16 points. Gold is up 0.9% to 1,000, sorry, 0.07%. It's up 0.0. Uh, sorry, 90 cents rather. Um, it's now at 1,292 points. Earlier, as I mentioned, US stocks had closed at a record on Friday with the S&P standing at, um, sorry, over, uh, sorry about that. It's um, I'm trying to find the exact figure here. Um, it's um, sorry, I don't I don't have it in front of me. But, um, but there's going to be no trading in the U.S. today because it's a Memorial Day weekend. Okay, we've got Guillaume back on the line. Hello. Hello. Much better. So okay. sorry about that interruption. Okay. Vin Expo is going to start tomorrow at the convention center. So what? brings Vin Expo to Hong Kong and what have you um, how has it benefited um, wine sellers uh, if, in the last recent years in the recent years since you launched Vin Expo in Hong Kong? Well you know the, um, the Asia Pacific is, um, is by far the, the, the fastest growing region in the world now um, it has been over the last five years with a, a growth of 67% and we expect the growth to, uh, to continue for the next five years so obviously it's very exciting for us to host uh, the industry here in Hong Kong after two years. 
And um, what are the recent trends in the wine market? Because we've seen a slowdown in Chinese wine demand. Is that a big concern for um, wine growers? Um, it is a concern, of course, but uh, at the same time, we see that uh, the uh, expansion of the imported wines to China uh, is, 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 is growing. So this is a very good sign for the industry. And um, um, we actually see that a lot of new countries are coming to China, uh, not only uh, the, uh, the main players of the market like France, Italy or Spain, but also the new world, for instance. Great. And what can visitors expect from this year's show? What are the highlights? Well, professionals will, will, will come to take the temperature of the trade. Um, we'll be launching a China One Forum to discuss the, uh, the main issues of the China market and, and, and its perspective for the, for the future. I would do um, also focus on spirits this year. Um, we have uh, many more exhibitors of the, of the spirit industry, so it will be quite interesting. But like, um, like each Vin Expo, uh, people will be able to taste, um, um, for instance, a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, a Chardonnay from Burgundy, or a Pinot Noir from uh, Oregon. So uh, we've got all major regions with us. Great. Lovely. Well, good luck with the show. I'm Thank afraid you very much indeed. Run out of time. That was Guillaume de Glee, CEO of 